You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. The problems, I think, in actually moving towards a relationship with China were really twofold. Not so much domestic opposition, but partly the history. The history of the relationship between China and the United States was a very unhappy one. It had not always been unhappy. I mean, it's a long relationship. It goes back into the end, uh, back at least until the end of the 18th century, and at times had been actually quite a warm relationship. And many young Chinese, as their own society went through really fearful turmoil in the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, looked to the United States as a model of the sort of society they would like to build in China. There was a young Chinese student in south-central China for example, the 1980s, going to school, who had as his two great foreign heroes, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Now, he grew up to be Mao Zedong and grew up to be the leader of China and grew up to be very hostile towards the United States. But there was, within that relationship between China and the United States, there was both a negative side and a positive side. And the positive side was that a lot of Chinese had actually looked to the United States as a friendly power and as a model. Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and now we are on the way to China. Uh, what we're going to listen to in this episode is, is, is all the things that went into making this trip happen, because you're not only talking about totally different cultures, totally different uh, places in the in the world as far as uh, technology and communications ability. All these issues are going to play a factor. And, uh, and problems have got to be overcome as we get ready for President Nixon to go to China. And so you're going to hear from the people uh, that uh, that put this trip together. Uh, uh, Ron Walker, his wife wrote a book about his time there uh, when he lived basically there, putting it together on the floor, on the ground. Dwight Chapin, who was an aide to to President Nixon, also was he. A, here in Washington, he was there in Washington D.C., but he went to China two or three times because, uh, you know, of course Kissinger went, then Alexander Haig went, all in, in preparation for President uh, Nixon's uh, trip there in February of 1972. So here, let's listen to them talk about all the different things they were having to do to put this trip together. Tim Elborn and Ron Walker. Ron Walker being a very special friend of ours, who, by the way, is the chairman and uh, of of the. Richard Nixon Foundation uh, in Yorba Linda. Uh, but they, Ron and Tim were in country, and I would talk to them every day, twice a day. Morning and night, we would converse. For the first uh, two or three weeks that they were in country, they would have to drive out to the airport, and there was this new thing called a satellite suitcase. And we would use this satellite suitcase to communicate back and forth. And uh, one of the key elements of the trip is that if, if you're making a presidential trip in the United States, all of the details are worked out. Everything is known. In this particular situation, we would ask the Chinese, you know, what we were going to be doing, let's say, on day three or day two. 
and we would get these blank stares. In fact, the joke used to be something like they would bring the group another tangerine. Have or another something. tangerine. You have another answer. tangerine, but they would never get an answer as to you know what what was happening. So that was a very frustrating part of trying to put this trip together was trying to get the Chinese to commit. Of course, they're trying to understand the needs. They've never gone through anything like this before. The main challenge, when we first went over there in October, and you're driving into town, there are these big posters, red dog, you know, United States dogs of capitalism. I mean, all of this anti-America propaganda and so forth. And uh, so you're, you're, you're getting this feeling of this adversary of this, I mean, they just, it was uh, like, how are we ever going to get through to these people? You know, that, eh, eh, eh. but the the person that made it work was Cho Enlai. I mean, it was his uh, gracefulness. And, and I know there are many people in, historically, you know, I mean, they, they say, well, Mao and Cho Enlai and their long march and so forth, and they killed, you know, the, all these hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people and so forth. But, I mean, we didn't experience any of that. We experienced a gracefulness and a, des- and, and a desire to make things work out. <clears throat> I always say that the China trip was much easier than the Russia trip. The China tri- In China, when they said something, it would happen the way that they said it would. In Russia, they would say something and lie to you, and it was a real problem to, to have it work out. But I found that in China, you know, whatever, we had to overcome a lot of things. I mean, just housing. Where are these people? Where are all these people going to stay? What are motorcades going to be? Whose kind of, whose airplanes are we going to use? What kind of motorcades? Do we bring our own cars? Uh, you know, where will the meetings be? All, you know, how many cities are we going to visit? I mean, that was endless, the number of things that had to be decided and worked out. And then logistically to be moving all of this this large number of people around. I mean, that, that was the challenge, and that, those were the issues. Dr. Kissinger went over, as we pointed out, in July of 1971. Then we put together a, a trip that I'm going to talk a little bit more about in a few minutes that went back in October of 71. There were uh, around nine of us on that trip. And then we went back again for the, the second time for me, third time for... Uh, several of the people in January of 1972 with General Haig. There was a lot going on on these trips. Now, this is really interesting. You know, you don't think about all the things that you might need when you go on a trip and you get there and you're in a different culture, in a different land. They got different everything. And so this is kind of interesting to listen. This is a segment from China Calls, the book that Mrs. Walker wrote about Ron Walker's stay there. Uh, but you'll listen to all the stuff they had to just buy <laughs> to make it through uh, their time there, from toilet paper to light bulbs to uh, instant meals because there's a lot of hot water that's left at times in the rooms. And it's, it's, just, it's just really interesting. China in January had been a chance to learn some important lessons for the longer stay, preparing for the president's visit. It was almost impossible to read by the light of the 30-watt bulbs furnished in all Chinese hotel rooms. But every room, every day, at every moment, had a thermos of steaming hot water on a table. It seemed logical to take along some of those tasty instant packets which only needed hot water. Coffee, oatmeal, tea, Lipton is better than jasmine, hot chocolate, and a cup of soup. 
and good old GE light bulbs would make one hell of a difference. For practical purposes, ice did not exist in the People's Republic of China. But since they were going in the middle of winter, why not just take along some ice trays and make ice cubes on the hotel windowsill? Everyday items which we take for granted needed to be taken in abundance. Toothpaste, Kleenex, deodorant, shaving cream, Rolaids, Alka-Seltzer, aspirin, Pepto-Bismol, and cigarettes. Marlboro's are better than Changwa's. Familiar tastes that one would most likely miss, peanut butter, jam, crackers, Coca-Cola, Gatorade, and squirt cheese, were added to the shopping list. Chinese food may be delicious, but every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Roadrunner's family went to the giant food store before his departure to buy everything for his survival suitcase. The checkout clerk was appalled at the junk food the woman with the three little girls was buying. She could hardly contain herself as she wrung up bag after bag of chips, pretzels, peanuts, cans of bean dip, and powdered and freeze-dried everything. The $264.59 grocery bill included anything perishable but it did include six 150-watt light bulbs and six four-packs of squeezably soft toilet paper. So when this trip started out, now keep in mind, nobody knew that this was going to happen. So the president originally, originally he said there'll be no press that go on this trip. Yeah, he loved the press. <laughs> there'll be no press on this trip. Then he came to the position that he would take a military jet star that he had never yeah, been on, never which, which holds 13 people. Yeah, he had no idea how small they were. But that was what he was going to do. Uh, and then events started happening. What started happening was that in the media, every, this whole thing started just building. And it's a very important part of understanding this whole thing. It just got bigger and bigger. And, and the media contributed to this. I mean, the... Uh, historians, you name it. Everybody started getting into the act. Week after week on the cover of Time, Newsweek, and so forth. We didn't have the 24-7 channels or they would have been into orgasms. Uh, in any case, uh, we ended up with 354 roughly going on this trip, which was the official party, the press, the military, Secret Service, staff, and others. So we had to take Air Force One, a couple of other planes, and uh, the logistics were quite complex, uh, particularly because we did not know the infrastructure which Clay referred to in China. We, we were really quite ignorant on that side. Well, just a simple question, like, how do you land at an airport in China? So, being Americans, being Americans, we, uh, I, should, I should point out, we were, had set up a room down in the bomb shelter of the White House. And uh, I, I had been President Nixon's appointment secretary. I was relieved of those duties and assigned full-time getting this trip put together. So we sat down uh, and had the Boeing people come from Seattle, and we put together a huge binder. And this binder solved all issues, because we're Americans, we can solve anything. And uh, we came up with the idea that in order to service the radio, television, and so forth community, we would get a 747 decked out with satellite dishes and everything, and we did diagrams showing how the 747 was divided into various studios for audio, uh, for video production, and so forth. And all we would have to do is get this thing built in Seattle, fly it over, and land, and we would solve all of the communications issues. Well, we went over in October on Henry's trip, Henry Kissinger's trip, and we presented this document. And, of course, everybody nodded and, 
oh, this, you know, know, we didn't get any comments back about yes, no, or maybe, or whatever. Uh, and, And they read the plan. The interesting thing is, we got no answers. We left. We kept asking them what was going on with this particular concept. And uh, it was when we went back with General Haig in January, and we had landed, and they wanted to show us something. And they took us over to a part of the airport where they had constructed a building that was just basically in the dimensions with the same size studios and so forth that we had had in the book for the 747. They had put it all there and built the, built the building out of brick. And the idea, of course, being that in order to save face for their country and so forth, there was no way they were going to take our idea and use it as we had presented it. But we did end up with the facility at the airport, and it was the way that the press were serviced when they were in country. Uh, one of the interesting things, Frank, is when we came back in January, or actually, when we came back in October, we started working with the people at Boeing on a 747. And we would were figuring out how to put all the media and their studios and everything into the 747. I don't know if you've ever heard this, uh, but we had it all figured out. We, we, we met with the networks. We figured out because there were no facilities in China. So when we went over there on the Al Haig trip, we made this presentation as to how we could fly this plane in and it would have everything. The Chinese nodded and everything else and never really gave us an answer. But what they did is that they took everything. It was a face issue. And uh, in other words, for them not to have the facilities would have been reflected not necessarily positively on their country. So what they did is they took our drawings and everything, and they built a facility that looked very much like an airplane that had all of the stuff that anybody needed, you know, in terms of the the equipment, everything. Then also they wanted us to bring all that equipment and they offered to buy it all. They wanted all that technology. They didn't want it leaving their country. It's kind of an interesting piece of the puzzle. Chinese are eager to learn and, and, and to bring that technology back home to, to be used, you know, for the future. They, they want to move to the next level. And uh, one of the more interesting side stories in this book, China Calls, that, that I had, had to do with them trying to make ice. They didn't really have, uh, they didn't make ice, or at least it wasn't a well-known thing there in China or a used thing there. And so they spent a disproportionate amount of time during their time there because it was cold, uh, it was wintertime, uh, trying to make ice and get around the high pollution rate uh, of, of stuff that would get into the ice while they had it out on the windowsills trying to make it. But it, it was also a story that would end up teaching them lessons that the Chinese wanted to send them, messages um, about, you know, that while they wanted, the Chinese wanted to help them, they wanted to do it at their own rate. And so it's kind of an interesting little side story, and uh, I was going to share it with you from the audiobook. It had been a long day. The formal banquet and the diplomacy of the toasts had made everyone feel very tired indeed. Why did it seem so difficult? He needed to unwind. He needed to talk to Snapshot. Let's have a scotch. The ice. He hurried to his room, opened the window, and leaned out over the sill, far above the hundreds of workers riding their bicycles home from work. 
Bicycle bells tinkled incessantly as they threaded their way in and out on the wide picking street below. He picked up the tray of ice. Roadrunner couldn't believe his eyes. The frozen cubes were absolutely black with the coal soot that polluted this huge Chinese city. Damn it, he said out loud. Snapshot arrived and they cussed about the filthy black ice cubes and poured scotch over them and sipped carefully. They slurped the liquid through their teeth to strain out the soot and showed each other the biggest pieces. By the second drink, they were seeing which one could spit the Peking pollution particles the far. They assured each other that it didn't even taste so bad anymore. It was time to get the scotch and check the ice. Before setting off in the morning, Roadrunner had filled the ice cube tray and very carefully wrapped it in a bath towel before setting it out on the windowsill. He was very excited. He was going to have clean ice tonight. He gave Snapshot the high sign and hurried to his room. Everything looked fine. The hall attendant had straightened up and probably read everything on his desk. He'd done the old hair on the briefcase trick and had confirmed that the Chinese were checking things out, but knowing this somehow made it easier to deal with. He opened the window and retrieved the towel-wrapped tray. Good, he thought, seeing the filthy towel. He uncovered the bundle. There were no cubes in the tray. What? he exclaimed. Twelve little cubes hung in neat little rows from the towel. Damn, frozen fast at the terry cloth. He and Snapshot cussed and laughed and laughed. They poured the scotch over the fuzzy cubes. They were now experts at straining stuff through their teeth. And besides, lint was probably healthier than coal soot. In China, Roadrunner was pooped but too pumped up to sleep. But a thought jolted him upright. It had been such a hectic evening that he'd forgotten to check the ice. He yelled at Snapshot, and they flew down the hall into Roadrunner's room and to the window. They had wrapped the ice trays in a pillowcase from Roadrunner's bed, reasoning that this would keep out the Peking soot without leaving little cotton hairs in the water. Roadrunner looked at the bundle on his sill. The pillowcase was filthy. He reached outside and... Damn! The whole bundle was stiff as a board. It had absorbed all the water and was frozen hard as a rock. There weren't any cubes at all. They drank a couple of sips of scotch neat, commiserating about their frustrations. Their co-workers were sick and getting sicker instead of better. They had no steno support, and neither of them could type worth a tinker's dam. They had no telex because the Chinese feared they were spies. For Christ's sake, we're advanced men, Roadrunner declared. We blew up balloons and built crowds during the 1968 campaign. I worked at Disneyland. Mickey Mouse is one of my very best friends, Snapshot responded. How come the Chinese don't know any of this, they wondered. Roadrunner and Snapshot agreed that the Chinese must have had some kind of a dossier on them. Hell, the Chinese probably invented spying. What with all those stories about the Imperial Palace intrigue, Roadrunner exclaimed, everyone knows that all communists are supposed to be spies, but now they won't even talk to us or return our phone calls took it upon himself to perk his friend up. Come on, Snapshot, we got an important experiment going on here, and we got to check it out, he said. The sparkle came back to Snapshot's eyes. You're exactly right, he said. It is one of the more important aspects of our being in China. That morning, they had wrapped some Chinese newspapers around the ice tray. They thought the newsprint might keep out the pollution without drooping and absorbing all the water. They hurried to the windowsill, and Roadrunner pulled the newspaper-wrapped tray toward him. Water sloshed out and soaked his sleeve from wrist to elbow. Can you believe that? he yelled. It insulated the water from the cold and didn't freeze. After the whole damn day in this freeze-your-ass-off cold. Roadrunner was really mad now. There had to be a way to solve the ice problem. Sipping scotch, neat, they vowed to find an answer. 
Maybe they couldn't control the Chinese, but by God, they could figure out how to make ice. The reputation of American ingenuity was at stake now. ...telephone call to Washington, and then about the ice cubes waiting on the windowsill. They had decided to tent the newspaper over the tray to let the cold air circulate while still keeping out the pollution particles. He smiled into the rapidly approaching darkness outside the car window. It's getting dark. Why doesn't the driver turn on his headlights? He asked Mr. Chu. Because it isn't seven o'clock yet, was the reply. Dear Lord, help me understand their reasoning, Roadrunner silently prayed. After stopping by the hospital to check on Vern Coffee, they arrived back at the hotel. The conference call came in at 10.35. Was coming to a close in China, the best day so far despite the fiery wake up call. They could actually feel the events taking shape. Come on, snapshot, it's that very important moment, Roadrunner said. They hurried to the windowsill. The newspaper tent was intact. With great excitement, Roadrunner pulled the paper away, and he and Snapshot let out a loud whoop. It's ice! they cheered, slapping each other on the back. They made a ceremony out of filling two glasses with the precious cubes frozen by the Chinese wind. Roadrunner poured the scotch and held his glass up to his ear. Listen, you can hear the Chinese wind and the faint tinkling of bicycle bells. They laughed, clinked their glasses together, and toasted to the president. Screw it, Tim. Let's go retrieve our ice. Just then the hall attendant entered the room and proudly set a saucer on the table. He was grinning from ear to ear. There were three ice cubes on the saucer. All three of them laughed and shook hands. And Roadrunner and Snapshot proclaimed the presentation a generous and thoughtful gift of friendship. Snapshot put one ice cube in each of the three glasses and tried to get the attendant to take one. But he kept smiling and shaking his head back and forth as he left the room. When he was gone, Snapshot said, I wonder how long it took them to figure out what we were trying to do out there on a windowsill. You notice that they waited until we found success, don't you? Roadrunner responded. You think they're making these the same way we are? Snapshot said, I'll bet if we could go exploring in this hotel, we'd actually find a refrigerator. I think they made these the old-fashioned way, like our mothers did, by pouring water into an ice tray and walking very carefully to the refrigerator and spilling some of it before they got it on a little shelf inside the freezer. You want to go on a fridge hunt? Don't even consider it, Roadrunner warned. First of all, they do not want us wandering around this hotel. And secondly, it would look as though we were not grateful for these three very fine cubes. They sipped in silence. It felt good just to relax. After a while, Snapshot said, I think these are very important ice cubes. We must set a signal. They want to do it our way, but within what they consider to be reasonable limits. Limits that they are comfortable with. You know and I know that if we're going to take somebody ice, we would take a full bucket. But here in a PRC, we only get three cubes of ice. That, my friend, is a very important message. Roadrunner fell asleep thinking about the three ice cubes. Hi, this is Randall Wallace. Uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. 
There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that we would be given, uh, or I, I should say I was given because it would usually come to me, I was the one making the contacts uh, back and forth to Ron and Tim for the most part. I mean, others came on, onto the conference calls, but we would be told of certain things to mention that were kind of pieces of information that Dr. Kissinger was trying to, or the president trying to get the Chinese leaders to focus on. And the importance of that is that everything we were doing was being obviously noted and listened to by the PRC. And so if we made some comment about it would be great if Premier Cho would do X, Y, or Z, uh, they, while we, I was really talking to Ron, uh, it was a message that was being noted by the Chinese. So we use that vehicle a lot in order to try to get certain points across. When I looked up at the heat event like he saw something other than just the heat event. In fact, I think I'll go scream in my pillow very soon, he said in a louder than normal voice. But before I do, we'd like some ice, please. Two sauces full would be just outstanding. Shay, shay. Oh, yeah, and two cold bottles of Pijou, please. Thanks, guys. Pijou was Chinese beer. Snapshot looked at Roadrunner and laughed again. You are great. You don't think they'll really bring us beer and ice just because you wears the heat event? Just then the hall attendant came into the room with a bamboo tray. He set a bowl of ice cubes on the table and two brown bottles of beer. Roadrunner and Snapshot bowed and thanked him and clinked the bottles together and raised them toward the hall attendant. To your health and long life, Roadrunner told him. Yeah, and here's to no warm Hawaiian anythings and more pillow screamings. Snapshot said in a very sad voice. Shay, Shay, Roadrunner said, and he was looking at Snapshot when he said it. Whenever you're trying to bridge cultures that are of such a big divide, whether it be, you know, capitalism, communism, communications, technology, lack of it, trying to figure out everything, it can be frustrating and it had its moments. Intently a Snapshot. I know what you mean, he said. I'm starting to feel it too. We sit in those meetings, and I swear to you, sometimes I know what they're going to say before they say it. Tim, Mike, you're absolutely 100% correct, Roadrunner said. This can work to our advantage. Watchdog wants the Chinese to release more of the scheduled details, but they are dead set against it. So let me come at you with some questions, and you two put on your Chinese thinking caps and come up with the answers, okay? Fire away, Schroth said. But first, 
Snapshot insisted. Have a tangerine, have a cup of tea, enjoy a piece of candy. Did you have a pleasant day? Were you able to pause and enjoy the singing of the bird? Was there a rainbow after the rain? Did the fragrance of a beautiful flower come your way? Did the smile of a child grace your day? Did you see the butterfly in the garden? Did the turtle safely cross the road? When we have talked about these things, we can discuss other less important matters. Now, what did you want to ask me? It was, it was fascinating. Well, first of all, the Chinese were wonderful. And they wanted to learn. And they, they had this incredibly positive attitude about things. They, they wouldn't give us answers to questions, which, which is a theme that goes all the way through even before Nixon departed. We didn't know a lot of what was going to happen. Uh, and they, because they were feeling their way, this, this thing got so big and there were so many moving parts to it and they couldn't give answers. They would not give an answer unless it was an honest answer, which is a very important point. In other words, they're not going to tell you something and change, which is entirely different than what we experienced with the Russians. Okay? So, so what we're doing is we're sitting across the table and we're discussing how all this can work. And, and it was very, uh, it was really a very much a diplomatic exercise. We would mention things, they would mention things. I mean, everybody's sounding everybody out here. Meanwhile, down the hall or wherever in the great hall of people, Kissinger is working on, you know, what the Shanghai communique is going to look like. And then when Haig goes, you know, he's getting awakened in the middle of the night with, you know, to go see Cho and Lai and work on the communique. That, 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 all that substance stuff is taking place on one level. And we are over here working on all of the logistical aspects of this. And we're talking about upwards of 400 people that we're bringing when you count the press. I mean, this is a huge operation. Um, so in, in any case, to, to, to be more specific on your question, it, it was a give and take type proposition. And it was one, I would say, of trust. We really got to trust our counterparts. We, we never trusted them in, in, in Russia. But I would say that in China, we really trusted each other. I have one other story to tell. About 8.30 tonight, we got invited next door to the opening of some facilities. There was a basketball court, ping-pong facilities, pool facilities, and a bowling alley. They had built it for us. The first day we were here, we talked about athletic facilities. I told them people would like to get some exercise. I asked if we could go to a gymnasium to play basketball and ping-pong. I didn't hear anything more, and tonight we found out they have built a facility for us right next door. This was quite an amazing gesture of hospitality. The Chinese were very proud of this surprise for their guests, and rightly so. I am not kidding you. It's open from nine in the morning till midnight, and it's taken them a week to build it. In the evening, they even had waiters serving beer. Watchdog, that's sensational. That was very, very nice. The president's mood, I'm glad to say, after having worked with him and for him for 21 years, is one of really great pride, and certainly all of us have great pride, in him today because he's as I think he always is in complete control of his well his destiny but more I think the countries and the world his mood is uh, pensive he has studied he has worked hard he has thought about this for well I know from 
early 1967, 68, maybe longer, that somehow we had to have a negotiation. We, we couldn't have this many million people alienated from the United States. I can only hope and pray and join the rest of the world in hoping it will be successful. And I am excited, I am proud, lived through a lot of big moments with the Nixons. But I think this is truly one of the greatest. Thursday, February 17th, departure ceremonies and the takeoff of Andrews all went very well with no problems. The president seemed to be in great spirits on the chopper going over to Andrews as uh, he too felt the whole thing had gone well. So uh, things seemed to be off to an auspicious start. We saw a little bit of the uh, TV coverage after we got on the plane because they had the uh, sat on the table in the staff room. It was kind of an odd feeling because we they covered the actual takeoff of, of the Spirit of 76 and we were on the plane watching the TV covering the takeoff, which was sort of fascinating. I think what we have to do, the, the first day, is to uh, is to feel it out as we uh, we're going we're going to, have to find out what the mood is. Uh, we have, want to find out whether whether uh, the mood might be on the basis of their statement they made a couple of days ago, or it might be they may have said that. No, they may say something else. And I want to feel naturally there'll be. In the, in the plenary sessions, we'll have every, we'll have our, everybody, all our interpreters there. But uh, I do not want to have a situation, say, where I'm in, a, in what is basically a very private meeting with him, where I'm bringing, where there are extra people there. My experience has been that these times are really illustrative. They. Yeah. They let it run. Well, the difficulty is that that day we have a plenary session and we have a dinner, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Postpone the dinner. <clears throat> I've never seen them pay any attention, but they always start on the second. I mean, there's right. never they're never late. Start on the second and end on the hour. But uh, but I think they again just judging by my October trip. They'll get it done in two hours at the plenary session because you'll make a statement, he'll make a statement, and there'll be some general agreement on how to proceed. This is most interesting with the Chinese. Your comments before about Mao and Joe and Melrose uh, anti memoirs are most interesting. You know? Yeah, and read the first part too. It's talk about really the more interesting part is his evaluation of Nigal. It's, uh, it's rather fascinating. Okay. Carrier base here, 
troops marching up and down and everything else. Well, a bunch that's all repetitive and no good anymore, except to make one reel of the very best of it, and then a series of, of, of just shots, sort of a montage of the of the leaders as they stood on the platform. So you go bling 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 one after another. Then it'll, that'll be fascinating. Roll, baby. Roll. You know, the uh, I think we we're going to have to walk a very fine line in this briefing today because it's the first briefing with this group that's that's going to China with us and because of the many sensitivities with the People's Republic of China I think I think we want to give them a general feel of, of uh, what the visit will be about what the discussions will be about but we can't in any way get into the agenda or get into uh, the schedule because it's not set now I think we want to talk a little bit about the leadership meeting yesterday and the point that the president made that all Americans have a stake in this visit, uh, that uh, it's the beginning of a process, a process of communications with a country that we haven't really been in touch with for 21 years and, and uh, how we want that process to continue and, and how the continuation of that process will be discussed in the meetings. And I think. I think that's the only tone we want to leave this morning, don't you? Yeah, it's going to be a rough session, Ron, because uh, they're just thirsting for news, and you know you have an all-star cast down there. So I don't envy you your job this morning. Well, when you put Buckley and Teddy White and Max Frankel and Phil Potter and John Chancellor and Walter Cronkite and all those people in one room, I guess they are going to be a little difficult today. But we'll deal with it. Saturday, February 19th. In Hawaii, the president had me over at 10 this morning. We got into some domestic questions on the busing thing, the poverty bill, the back strike. We went over the schedule for next week, and uh, we discussed on his tactic for handling the meetings and the techniques that he's going to use. He says Henry's urging him to do it Henry's way, which is to get into the long drawn out historical and philosophical discussions with Joe, which uh, the president is not inclined to do. Henry's also urging him to start in the plenary session with a reading a written statement, which uh, the president also is not inclined to do, and intends to follow his own uh, technique on this rather than Henry's advice. He feels that uh, he'll do much better that way, and I think he's absolutely right. This is not a time for a long speech, but I would not want this opportunity to pass without saying just a word with regard to the significance of this moment. Some of you may recall that it was two and a half years ago that right here in Guam, I announced a new direction for American foreign policy based on the principles of self-reliance, self-respect, equal dignity for all nations, large and small, throughout the world. And tomorrow, I will take off from Guam for Shanghai and Peking, the first president of the United States ever to visit China. Guam, I know it is said, is where the American day begins. <laughs> And I would hope that all of you here today would join me in this prayer. That with this 
trip to China, a new day may begin for the whole world. Thank you very much. And then our final document uh, are these Nixon would like to take on legal size yellow uh, yellow notepads these long notes uh, and and at the the Nixon Presidential Library there are probably hundreds maybe thousands of pages of these during most of his political life this was always his practice to take notes to rehearse something to prepare an idea to think through something um, that these notes were written on more than just any ordinary day. Uh, they were written while he was on his modified Boeing 707 that we know as Air Force One, crossing the Pacific, going to China on February 20th, 1972, the beginning of that trip that he said would the week was the week that changed the world. So these were a page of the notes that he was writing to himself, kind of rehearsing points um, and positions about what he was about to take part in uh, during the summit in, in, in China. And just a few points that, that stand out uh, that are over on the type in the right hand side. So it, it takes a certain skill to read his handwriting sometimes. So we've, we've, we've typed out a few of the points. But at the first part, he thinks in terms of what do they want, the Chinese. And obviously they want to build up their world credentials. They want to solve the matter of the status of Taiwan. Uh, they, want, they want the U.S. out of Asia, or at least most of the U.S. out of Asia, in terms of the war. They want the war ended. What we want. We also want the war ended, Indochina. Uh, we want to, um, you know, in the future, what kind of relationship do we want now, and what do we want in the future? And then the focus of a lot of his remarks, as you also hear on some of the tapes, is what do we both want, because that's the common ground between the nations. And what you see there, uh, both sides uh, want to reduce danger in, in Asia, uh, conflict in the world. They want a more stable Asia that allows economic growth and the war being over. Uh, and both sides, the U.S. and the PRC, are concerned about the USSR, the Soviet Union. So the focus of much of the summit talk was, was there certainly were disagreements, but it was to focus on common areas between the two.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.